0: Ezekiel chapter 45, verses 1 through 12 is where we'll get started to tonight. It says, When you allot the land as an inheritance, you shall set apart for the Lord a portion of the land as a holy district, 25,000 cubits long and 20,000 cubits broad. It shall be holy throughout its whole extent. Of this, a square plot of 500 by 500 cubits shall be for the sanctuary, with 50 cubits for an open space around it. And from this measured district you shall measure off a section 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 broad, in which shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be the holy portion of the land. It shall be for the priests who minister in the sanctuary and approach the Lord to minister to him. And it should be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary." Another section, 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 cubits broad, shall be for the Levites who minister at the temple as their possession for cities to live in. Alongside the portion set apart as the holy district, you shall assign for the property of the city an area 5,000 cubits broad and 25,000 cubits long. It shall belong to the whole house of Israel. And to the prince shall belong the land on both sides of the holy district and the property of the city, alongside the holy district and the property of the city on the west and on the east, corresponding in length to one of the tribal portions and extending from the western to the eastern boundary of the land. It is to be his property in Israel. And my princes, plural, shall no more oppress my people, but they shall let the house of Israel have the land according to their tribes. Thus says the Lord God, Enough, O princes of Israel, put away violence and oppression and execute justice and righteousness, Cease your evictions of my people, declares the Lord God. You shall have just balances, a just ephah and a just bath. The ephah and the bath shall be of the same measure, the bath containing one-tenth of an omer and the ephah one-tenth of an omer. The omer shall be the standard measure. The shekels shall be 20 geras, 20 shekels plus 25 shekels plus 15 shekels shall be your mina." Now we're just going to stop right here, and we'll take some time to kind of break this section down. We have been speaking of a future reallotment of the land of Israel for the 12 tribes. In the handout that you all got tonight, and if you didn't get one, stick your hand up, and Allison can run one to you. And the handout that you got tonight, you'll see on the left-hand side is where the, re- the distri- dist- redistribution of the land of Israel during the Millennial Kingdom will be for all the 12 tribes, which we're going to get into that in more detail t- next week. On the right-hand side, this is the Holy District we've been looking at so far tonight in chapter 45, and we're gonna to go to chapter 48 in a little bit to look at some more. This section that's to the right is actually going to be between Judah and Benjamin on your map on the left. If you see on your map on the left, you see the city of Jerusalem is gonna be between Judah and Benjamin. This section here, this Holy District, It's pretty good size. It's eight miles uh, long by three point something miles long by three point something miles wide. It's quite a big area uh, and uh, in parts of it actually it's bigger than that. But this section will be between Judah and Benjamin. There's going to be seven tribes to the north and five tribes to the south. And as you see, this little square in the center of the Holy District there, or not quite the center, but looks like the center, is that temple complex that you had the other handout that we've been looking at over the last few weeks with all the gates and the Holy of Holies and all that. This is enlarged a little bit in your picture as well, but that's where that's going to be. So you'll notice the temple complex, which is one mile square, actually won't be in Jerusalem during the Millennial Kingdom. It'll be north of the city in the center of this holy district that's there, all right? So this is what we're going to be talking about tonight as we take a look at this holy district. Go over to chapter 48 and look at verses 8 through 22. There's a little bit more information about it there as well. Chapter 48 of Ezekiel, verses 8 through 22. It says, "Adjoining the territory of Judah from the east side to the west shall be the portion which you shall set apart.'" 25,000 cubits in breadth and in length equal to one of the tribal portions from the east to the west. With with the sanctuary in the midst of it, the portion that you shall set apart for the Lord shall be 25,000 cubits in length and 20,000 in breadth. These shall be the allotments of the holy portion." The priest shall have an allotment measuring 25,000 cubits on the northern side, 10,000 cubits in breadth on the western side, and 10,000 in breadth on the eastern side, and 25,000 in length on the southern side, with the sanctuary of the Lord in the midst of it. This shall be for the consecrated priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept my charge, who did not go astray when the people of Israel went astray as the Levites did. And it shall belong to them as a special portion from the holy portion of the land, a most holy place, adjoining the territory of the Levites. And alongside the territory of the priests, the Levites shall have an allotment, 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in breadth. The whole length shall be 25,000 cubits in breadth, and the breadth 20,000. They shall not sell or exchange any of it. They shall not alienate this choice portion of the land for it is holy to the Lord. The remainder, 5,000 cubits in breadth and 25,000 in length, shall be for common use for the city for dwellings and for open country. In the midst of it shall be the city, and these shall be its measurements. The north side is 4,500 cubits, and the south side 4,500, east side 4,500, and the west side 4,500. And the city shall have open land on the north, 250 cubits, and on the south 250, in the east 250, and on the west 250. "...the remainder of the length alongside the holy portion shall be 10,000 cubits to the east and 10,000 to the west. It shall be alongside the holy portion. Its produce shall be food for the workers of the city, and the workers of the city from all the tribes of Israel shall till it. The whole portion that you shall set apart shall be 25,000 cubits square, that is, the holy portion, together with the property of the city." What remains on both sides of the holy portion and of the property of the city shall belong to the prince, extending from the 25,000 cubits of the holy portion to the east border and westward from the 25,000 cubits to the west border, parallel to the tribal portions, it shall belong to the prince. The holy portion with the sanctuary of the temple shall be in its midst. It shall be separate from the property of the Levites and the property of the city which are in the midst of that which belong to the prince." The portion of the prince shall lie between the territory of Judah and the territory of Benjamin." All right, so as you see, when God distributes the land during the Millennial Kingdom to all the tribes of Israel, the Levites are gonna get property, and it's gonna be in that holy section between Judah and Benjamin. And in that's going to be the temple. The city of Jerusalem is going to be just to the south of that. There's going to be land on both sides of the city of Jerusalem for growing food and all that. And then on the east and west side of the Holy District will be the area for the prince and his descendants and his families to live. And God has set it apart that way. We'll get to next week the allotment of all the tribes looking at it more in more detail uh, when we get to that next week. But what I want to do is I want to go back to chapter 45 and point out something that was also kind of reinstated as well in chapter 48. He says, by the way, let me just say that this is further evidence of what we're looking at here, that this hasn't happened yet and this is a future time. Because when you go do a study of when the nation of Israel came into the kingdom and the land back in Deuteronomy and in the time of Moses, actually Joshua, the allotment of the land was totally different. And you compare that with this, you'll see that they're not the same. Secondly, you'll also notice that this has never happened yet. You're going to see next week when we get to looking at some of the measurements of the city, that city itself, the city of Jerusalem, is going to be six miles in perimeter. But if you actually do a little study of what the na- uh, during the na- uh, heyday of the nation of Israel, in the time of Josephus, the perimeter of the city was only four miles at that time. This is a total different time, further evidence of the fact that this is literally going to happen when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom on the earth. But in chapter 45, and it was hinted at again in chapter 48, God said that the princes, the others who were in charge, not just the prince, but the princes themselves, will not enlarge their property lines by taking land from the people as they did in times past. And we're going to take some time tonight to take a look at this and why. And folks, let me just tell you where we're going in this study, as you will see, deals with what's going on in Israel today. But I want you to see that God clearly said to them, I don't want you to... When I give you the land and I distribute which tribe goes where, you don't sell it, You don't enlarge your borders. Even if you're a prince and you have the authority, you don't take advantage of your authority and take people's land. I'm giving the land for a reason to who I am for a reason. And I've even said which of the Levites can be in this section and which of the Levites can be in this section and which can be close to me and which ones can't. I want everybody that I want where for a reason. And you're not moving the boundaries, which was a big problem in the nation of Israel. And as you're about to see, as we go back and look, Actually, it's one of the many reasons why the nation of Israel was judged by God during their time. Because they didn't obey that back when he had said earlier not to move boundaries. But I get ahead of myself. Go to chapter 46 of Ezekiel and just look at verses 16 through 18. Ezekiel 46 verses 16 through 18 says, Thus says the Lord God, if the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as his inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his to the year of liberty. Then it shall revert to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons. The prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons and their inherit- his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property." So again, God reiterates something he had said earlier that wasn't obeyed, but will be obeyed during the millennial kingdom. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 22 and look at verses 26 through 29. You remember back when we were doing Ezekiel 22, and it seems like five years ago, but when when we were doing Ezekiel 22, there was reasons why God was bringing Nebuchadnezzar and the judgment on the nation of Israel and removing them completely from the land, taking them captive, others were being killed. In Ezekiel 22, verses 26 through 29, listen to what was going on in Israel. Verse 26, her priests, the priests of Israel, have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common, neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they have disregarded my Sabbaths, so I am profaned among them. Her princes... Those who are in charge, in her midst, are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. And the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice." Here he says, let me just tell you what I've seen the nation of Israel doing. The priests who are supposed to distinguish between holy and common, clean and unclean, haven't done that. On top of that, the princes who are supposed to be leading in righteousness have been using their authority to get unjust gain. You're going to see more of that in just a bit. On top of that, the prophets were all prophesying stuff that I'd never said, saying everything's good, God loves you, and everything's wonderful, when I wasn't feeling that way about you. I love you, but you're not being obedient, so don't listen to them. They're lying. And on top of that, the people themselves were taking advantage of each other, and you were all a mess. But the princes were taking dishonest gain. Go back to Numbers chapter 36. We're going to look at what God said to them way, way back before they went into the promised land for the first time. In Numbers chapter 36, verses 7 through 13. And once we take a look at this. Command of God, a story we're going to take a look at in the Bible that some of you may know about, some of you may not, is going to make a whole lot more sense. In, in Numbers chapter 36, look at verses 7 through 13. God says, The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance." The daughters of Zelephahad did as the Lord commanded Moses for Mala, Tirzah, Hogla, and Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. So before the Israelites actually go into the promised land, God says, I'm determining who goes where, and then once I've determined who goes where, you don't take what is yours or your your tribe's inheritance and sell it to somebody, other tribe. You keep it in your family, in in your tribe's inheritance. Keep it that way. God has a reason. But Israel didn't do it. As in pretty much everything God said don't do, they did it. Go with me to 1 Kings chapter 21. Let's take a look at a story of something that happened in the history of Israel. In 1 Kings 21, we'll get verses 1 through 16. It says, Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab the king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. So the king, Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom of, of, of Israel, He says to Naboth, who's got land right by his palace, Hey, your your vineyard's right next to my palace. I'd love to have it for a vegetable garden. Tell you what, I will give you equal value in another vineyard somewhere else, or I'll just sell you, you sell it to me, and I'll give you what it's worth. Sounds like not a bad deal. Well, but Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Why is he saying that? Because the Lord had commanded back in Numbers chapter 36, if it's been given to your family, you don't sell it to some other tribe. You don't sell it to somebody else. God says, I gave you that land for a reason, and I gave it to your people for a reason. It stays in your family. Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. In other words, I'm going to do what God says and he lay down on his bed and he turned away his face and wouldn't eat no food he threw a hissy fit but Jezebel his wife if you don't know Jezebel she's not good counsel Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and, he sa- and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you, do you now govern Israel? Are you not the king? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I'll give you the ve- vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. I'll take care of this since you're such a, a weenie. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders of the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, As it is written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth just cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead." As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Pretty messed up, isn't it? Naboth was righteous in the fact that he said, I can't do that. I know you give me a great price. I know you give me a wonderful offer. But God said not to do this. Most of us would say, What's the big deal? You're getting the same thing. No, God said no. Why did God say no? Well, to be honest with you, I don't fully understand why. All we know is He said it's not to be passed from tribe to tribe. It's supposed to stay in our family. And I'm trying to do what He says. Ahab got upset, Jezebel worked it out that he could get it for nothing. Oh, by the way, isn't that kind of what David did? It wasn't land that he took, but he took someone else's wife, and then he had him killed. God forgave David. There were consequences because of it. God forgives sin, but this sin of stealing the land, you're going to see was a problem that happened quite a bit. Oh, also, anybody catch the... Similar situation here as well with the fact that these two men accused Naboth of doing something he had never done. What happened to Jesus at his trial? They tried all this stuff, could find no fault, and they had a couple people come in and accuse him of doing something he'd never done. And he was put to death. Again, God uses messed up stuff for his glory, but watch out for those who do it. Watch out to those who do it. Go to Isaiah chapter 5. You're about to see that God used prophets, not just Ezekiel, but other prophets throughout the history of Israel to say, stop moving the boundaries of the land. Isaiah chapter 5, look at verses 8 through 9. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant, for 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. God says, I'm gonna bring judgment on you because of what you've been doing, and you're gonna actually, here you are thinking you're gonna get more and more land, you're joining house to house and boundary to boundary, you're thinking you're getting more and more property, guess what? Because of this, I'm going to make it so that you're going to end up in that property all by yourself, all by your lonesome. And even though you get all this land, it won't produce anything for you. I'm going to make it so that your crops fail. But why? Because they were wanting to get more and more and more. By the way, um, does anybody know who that sounds like? Someone that wasn't satisfied with the position that God had given them, but wanted more? Sounds like Satan, doesn't it? Wasn't Satan given a wonderful position? Our guardian cherub, he was an anointed one in the presence of the Lord, been given a tremendous lot in life, if you will, but he wanted more. Folks, be careful. Be careful. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Be careful of wanting more and more and more. The world's attitude is, "Is he who dies with the most wins. But that's not what God says. God says, be satisfied with what you have. Be content with what you have. There's nothing wrong with having more things. There's nothing wrong with increasing your property as long as it's done righteously. But at the same time, be careful of the desire to get more. Because if what's driving you is you think by getting more, you're going to be more happy. Years ago, I... Heard this story about a man who was a farmer, and he owned this big piece of property, and he put a billboard on the side of the highway, and it said this, I will give my 10,000-acre farm to anyone who is truly content. If there's anybody that's truly content, I will give my 10,000-acre property to them. Well, this multimillionaire drove down there, and he saw the sign, and he thought, well, i got a whole bunch of stuff, and nobody more content than me. So he turned around, drove down the property line, knocked on the door of the farmer's house, and said, I'm here to get the free property. The farmer says, are you truly content? He goes, yes, sir, I am. He said, then why do you want my property? Be careful. But go to Hosea chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5, look at verse 10. A different prophet now. We've heard from Ezekiel, we've heard from Isaiah. Now we're hearing from Hosea. Chapter five, verse ten says this: "The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water." Do you see it? I'm gonna pour out my wrath because you moved the boundaries. I didn't. I said never to move the boundaries, and I had a reason why I told you not to move the boundaries. Go to Micah chapter 2. Look at verses 1 and 2. Micah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. What are those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds? When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. That's another prophet. Again, God keeps sending the prophets to Israel saying, stop doing this. Stop moving the land. We need to be reminded of Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. Go to Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, because I'm about to get political, even though it's not political, it's biblical. Go to Psalm 24. Look at verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who's the earth? Whose is it? God's. And he gets to give it to whom he will. I'm not going to take the time to walk you back through Genesis chapter 12 and following where God made a promise to Abram And he said to him, go walk across the whole width and breadth of this land. I'm going to give it to you and your descendants as an everlasting possession. And I could show you over and over and over how that promise was reiterated to Isaac and to Jacob and so on. If you go back in Deuteronomy, you'll see God says, I'm going to bring you into this awesome land, and I'm giving it to you. Yeah, there are people that are there now, but because of their wickedness, and they've been given over 400 years to repent, and because they haven't repented, I'm going to use you as a method of judgment against them. And when that time comes, you're going to wipe them all out. I want you to wipe them all out because that is their judgment. And at the same time, I'm giving you this land. Now, if you obey me, you get to stay in the land. If you disobey me, I'm going to take you out of it. But he said, don't ever think that you are going to be totally removed from it because you never will be because of the promise I made to Abraham that that will be their inheritance forever. So I want to ask you this question. How do you think God feels today about those who would think they have the right to determine who gets what in the land of Israel? He's being patient right now. But a judgment's coming, folks. Go to Joel chapter 3. Go to Joel chapter 3. <clears throat> Look at verses 1 and 2. But behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, this is the, end of the tribulation period, beginning of the millennial kingdom, I will gather all the nations... And bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's where the battle of Armageddon is gonna be fought. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have what? And divided up my land. Folks, one of the saddest things is if you do any research, you'll find that most, and I mean this, Most Christians are pro-Palestinian. You'd be amazed how many Christians think that Israel is an unworthy occupier of Palestinian property. Not only are those weirdos out there who deny the Holocaust, there are people that say that Jerusalem was never the capital of Israel. David never ruled and reigned from there. It's amazing. And actually, Christians are actually on that side. I actually believe, I wouldn't, I'm not going to say this is how it's going to be, but the Bible says very clearly in Daniel chapter 9 that when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to confirm a covenant with the many for one seven. Remember many, many years ago, there was the Camp David Peace Accords, and they drafted a peace treaty. By the way, interestingly enough, it was a seven-year peace treaty, but it was never ratified. I'm not saying that will be the peace treaty that the Antichrist ratifies, but the Bible says in Daniel that the Antichrist is going to come and confirm a covenant. Oh, by the way, that peace treaty that they drew up that was never put into practice divided the land. Two state solution is what we hear today. I'm saying to you pray for our leadership, pray for our nation. Pray for those in power. The Bible says very clearly in the book of Zechariah chapter 12 and following that in the very, very last days, he's going to make Jerusalem a cup of stumbling and staggering to the whole world. They're all going to have a big problem in Jerusalem, and he's going to use that to actually begin what he's going to do at the end. But at the same time, he's going to bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. And folks, let me just tell you, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, both sides have been telling Israel to divide the land for peace. How does God feel about it? He's not happy. If he's going to get mad at the Israelites for moving the borders around, how do you think he's going to feel about the other nations who have no right to have a say on who gets the land? The Bible says God determines who gets the land, and when the millennial kingdom comes, it's going to be given to them, and it's theirs, and they're not to move it around. But between now and then, He's going to judge all the nations that did. Yeah, he's buying his time because not only that, but all the corruption is going on. You think people are getting away? Well, sooner or later they draw their last breath. Yep. Yeah. No, well, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. So pray, pray for, pray for the nation of Israel that they would get all the land that God has for them. And you'll find out that next week when we get to the specifics, it's amazing. You're going to find out there are some existing countries right now that are not going to be real happy. When Israel gets all the land, God promised them. Go to Ezekiel 45, look at verses 13 through 25. This is the offering that you shall make. One-sixth of an ephah from each omer of wheat, and one-sixth of an ephah from each omer of barley, and as the fixed portion of oil measured in baths, one-tenth of a bath from each core. The core, like omer, contains 10 baths. And one sheep from every flock of 200 from the watering places of Israel for grain offering, burnt offering, and peace offerings to make atonement for them, declares the Lord God. All the people of the land shall be obliged to give this offering to the prince in Israel. It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, and the Sabbaths, all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel, he shall provide the sin offerings, grain offerings, and burn offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, in the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a bull from the herd without blemish... And purify the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering. And put it on the doorposts of the temple. The four corners of the ledge of the altar. And the posts of the gate of the inner court. You shall do the same on the seventh day of the month. For anyone who has sinned. Through error or ignorance. So you shall make atonement for the temple. In the first month. "'On the fourteenth day of the month you shall celebrate the feast of the Passover, "'and for seven days unleavened bread shall be eaten. "'On that day the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land "'a young bull for a sin offering, and on the seven days of the festival "'he shall provide as a burnt offering to the Lord seven young bulls and seven rams without blemish.'" "...on each of the seven days a male goat daily for a sin, a sin offering, and he shall provide as a grain offering an ephah for each bull, and an ephah for each ram, and a hin of oil for, to each ephah. In the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, and for the seven days of the feast, he shall make the same provisions for sin offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, and for the oil." Now. We see here that the prince, and again like you've heard me say before, I think the scripture has been teaching us that it's actually King David is going to be ruling and reigning as the prince in Jerusalem with Jesus. He's going to be in the holy place in the temple. And David's going to be his his prince who's going to reign with him. There's going to be other princes. Remember Jesus told the 12 apostles that they're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We who are Gentiles are going to be a part of his kingdom. We're going to be ruling over the Gentile world all over the globe. We're going to be given responsibility in that way as well. It's going to be an amazing time. But the prince, I think it's David, and we're going to come back to something about that in a little bit that I just came out of, that we read in here, but we'll come back to it later. He's going to offer the offerings for the people at the Sabbath, the new moons, and the appointed feasts for Israel. A lot of people have missed this, but it appears that in the millennial kingdom, there's only going to be four feasts instead of seven. In the Old Testament, there were seven feasts, and they were all pointing to what was going to be fulfilled in Jesus But at the same time, in the millennial kingdom, there's going to be four, it appears, and one of them is going to be new. The first one that's going to be new is the New Year feast. Look at Ezekiel 45. Look at verses 18 through 20 again. Thus says the Lord God, in the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a bull from the herd without blemish and purify the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorposts of the temple and the four corners of the ledge of the altar and the post of the gate of the inner court. You shall do the same on the seventh day of the month for anyone who has sinned through error or ignorance so you shall make atonement for the temple. So here we see that there's going to be a feast where they're going to have a sacrifice on the first day of the year. Then on the seventh day of that year, they're going to uh, do it again. Now, in the first month, in chapter 45, verses 21 through 24, we then see on the 14th day of the month, they're going to celebrate the Passover, which was what, that's when it was in the Old Testament as well. All right, and we're not going to reread that again, but there's a Passover. And actually, you also see in verses 21 through 24, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is tied to that as well, just like it was in the New Testament. The feast of Passover was the day that Jesus died on the cross. Unleavened bread was when he was put in the tomb. And that will continue in the millennial kingdom. But there's also going to be a fourth feast, the Feast of Booths. And that's there in verse 25. It says, "...in the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month..." And for the seven days of the feast, he's going to make the same provision for sin offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, and for the oil. So some of you say, well, how do we know that that's the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, go back to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, look at verses 33 and 34. In Leviticus 23, verse 33, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, on the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. So on the seventh month, on the fifteenth day, and for seven days was the feast of what? Booths or tabernacles. So you remember, they were to build little huts out in the outside of their dwelling and live in those for a while, and it was a picture of how they, a reminder of how they wandered in the wilderness and God provided for them. It's also a picture of the fact that God was going to come and tabernacle with them, Actually, I personally believe that the Millennial Kingdom is going to start on the Feast of Tabernacles. I actually think that the day that he ascends the Mount of Olives is going to be on the Feast of Tabernacles when he comes to Tabernacle or to live with us. Now, to specifically say why only these feasts will be celebrated in the Millennial Kingdom would be to be guessing. If anybody says, here's why only these four feasts are going to be, be, be celebrated and the others aren't, because I don't know if you know which ones are missing, but First Fruits is missing, Pentecost is missing, Feast of Trumpets is missing, and Atonement, Day of Atonement is missing. So there's four feasts that are missing. They've added one, and they have three of the old ones that are being practiced. Now, some speculate that the feasts that are gonna be left have still some type of a remembrance purpose that the others don't. And that's a possibility. First fruits uh, was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, he's already risen, he's there, so they don't have to remember that. But again, that's, again we're getting into speculation and it's dangerous. Pentecost, as you know, was the day that the Holy Spirit came to indwell the believers. Trumpets, many people think is when the, feast, uh, sorry, when the, the rapture is going to occur. We don't know fully, but it's possible. Uh, the Day of Atonement, as you know, was the day, I think, that's the day that Jesus actually comes back and covers the sin of Israel when he, when he, when he re- re- reconciles them and, and at the end of the tribulation period. We don't know. But to speculate as to why, we don't know. Speculate as to why would be wrong, because we don't know. But I'm just going to throw something out. Maybe the ones that are left still have some kind of prophetic purpose. The feasts always had a prophetic purpose, pointing to what was to come be fulfilled in Jesus. I wonder if possibly these feasts that are left still have some kind of prophetic purpose. Why would they still celebrate the Feast of Booths? I think there's a possibility as a reminder of the fact that this isn't the last time that he comes to dwell with us. Go to Revelation 21. Go to Revelation 21. Look at verses 1 through 4. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. By the way, that's further evidence that this is not the millennial kingdom. This is after the millennial kingdom because you're going to see next week the boundaries of the land go all the way from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. But in this new heaven and new earth and when you say new heaven, why is God making a new heaven? When the Bible talks about a new heaven, it's talking about the skies, What you see in the stars and everything right now is going to be totally different. Remember at the end of the tribulation period, you got the sky rolling up like a scroll. The sun and the moon stop shining. They're going to just disappear. During the millennial kingdom, there's going to be a different type of a system in that way uh, in which God takes care of the earth. At the same time, at the end of the millennial kingdom, it's all new. The earth is different. The skies are all completely different. There's no need of the sun, the Bible says, because Jesus' glory lights the whole place. away. During the Millennial Kingdom, you probably hopefully remember in Isaiah 65, says that if someone lives only to be 100 years old, they're going to be considered cursed. They're going to be seen like an infant. People are going to live for a long time. The humans that make it into the Millennial Kingdom, we're going to keep living because we'll have our resurrected bodies. But during this time, there'll be no more death. And during the Millennial Kingdom, Jesus, who is God, will be there in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. But will God the Father be on the earth at that time? No, But during the new heaven and the new earth, God the Father comes to tabernacle with us. So I, I wonder if maybe the feasts that are left still have some future prophetic purpose. By the way, you're going to see next week that the new Jerusalem that comes down in Revelation 21 is not the same one as we see in the Millennial Kingdom. Because the Millennial Kingdom Jerusalem is six miles in perimeter. Does anybody have any remembrance from our Revelation study how big the New Jerusalem was? Is it between 1,400 and 1,500 miles on each side. Oh, and the Bible says it's also that tall. You want a rough idea of how crazy big that is? Does anybody know how far away the space station is right now, the International Space Station? Yeah, it's not even 300 miles away. So the New Jerusalem, if it were on the earth right now, wouldn't even fit on the United, its foundation wouldn't even fit on the United States of America without part of a corner sticking off into water somewhere or across a border. And it would go over three to four times past the space station. Not not the same as the millennial kingdom. New heaven and new earth. I don't think we have any clue as to what we're headed for, folks. It's gonna be awesome. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 46. Look at verses 1 through 15. It says, Thus says the Lord God, The gate of the inner court that faces east shall be shut on the six working days, but on the Sabbath day it shall be opened, and on the day of the new moon it shall be opened. The prince shall enter by the vestibule of the gate from outside and shall take his stand by the post of the gate. The priest shall offer his burnt offering and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. The people of the land shall bow down at the entrance of that gate before the Lord on Sabbaths and on the new moons. The burnt offering that the prince offers to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish, and a ram, and a ram without blemish. Lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And the grain offering in the, with the ram shall be an ephah, and the grain offering with the lamb shall be as much as he's able, together with a hin of oil, to, to each ephah. On the day of the new moon, he shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and six lambs and a ram which shall be without blemish as a grain offering. He shall provide an ephah with the bull and an ephah with the ram and with the lambs as much as he is able together with a hen of oil to each ephah. When the prince enters, he shall go enter by the vestibule of the gate and he shall go out by the same way. When the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feast, he who enters by the north gate to worship shall go out by the south gate. And he who enters by the south gate shall go out by the north gate. No one shall return by the way of the gate by which he entered. But each shall go out straight ahead. When they enter, the prince shall enter with them. And when they go out, he shall go out. "...at the feasts and the appointed festivals the grain offering with a young bull shall be an ephah, with a ram an ephah, and with the lambs as much as one is able to give, together with a hin of oil to an ephah. When the priest, I'm sorry, the prince provides a freewill offering, either a burnt offering or a peace offering as a freewill offering to the Lord, the gate facing east shall be opened for him, and he shall offer his burnt offering or his peace offerings as he does on the Sabbath day." Then he shall go out, and after he has gone out, to the, the gate shall be shut. You shall provide a lamb, a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering to the Lord daily. Morning by morning you shall provide it, and you shall provide a grain offering with it morning by morning, one-sixth of an ephah, and one-third of a hen to oil, of oil to moisten the flour as a grain offering to the Lord. This is a perpetual statute. Thus the lamb and the meal offering and the oil shall be provided morning by morning for a regular burnt offering. All right. Now, if you remember, the outer gate that faces east has already been shut. Does anybody remember why the outer gate that's our, that faces east has already been shut and sealed so no one will be able to pass through it anymore? Because at that point, the Lord has already come through it. He's already come to indwell the tabernacle. If you remember the temple complex in the paper that we handed out, it's got a gate to the north that enters the outer court, a gate to the east that enters the outer court, a gate from the south that enters the outer court. There's no gates on the west. And on the inner court to where the Holy of Holies is in the inner part of the temple complex, there's a gate that faces east, there's a gate that faces north, and another one that faces south. Jesus will have entered through the eastern gate, and then he also goes through the inner court eastern gate, and he enters the the temple there. Once he's entered through the outer eastern gate, it is to be sealed, never to be opened again, because the Lord has gone through there. And so whenever the worshipers come to enter the temple to worship, They either come through the northern gate or the southern gate. I'm going to come back to why the scripture says in just a little bit that they're only allowed if they come in the northern gate to go out the southern gate, and if they come in the southern gate only to go out the northern gate. It's kind of an interesting thing. We'll come back to that in just a second. But the inner gate of the temple is also to be sealed and shut, but it is allowed to be open on certain days. Six days of regular workday, it's not to be open, but on the Sabbath, it's allowed to be opened so that the people who are worshiping then can see the Lord and bow down before him. They'll look through the gate and they'll see him at the same time. The Bible says that on the new moons and on the Sabbaths, uh, sorry, the new moons and the festivals that they do these feasts, it will be open at that time. The prince, I believe David, will be able to go in, to do his work, but he has to come out the same way. He could easily go in and come out the southern gate or the northern gate on the inner part, but he's not allowed to. He's only allowed to go in and out of that one gate. But the people are going to come in one gate and go out the other, which we'll get to in a second. Now, back in verse 22 of chapter 45, we see the prince offering for an offering for his sin and the sin of all the people. Do you see it there in chapter 45, verse 22? On that day, the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a young bull for a sin offering. Now, some people have said, Jim, that's proof that David can't be the prince. Because at this time, David will have already been given his resurrected body. All the Old Testament saints at the end of the tribulation period, when Jesus comes to set up this kingdom, that's when the Old Testament saints are going to get their new bodies. We get ours at the rapture. The tribulation saints have to wait till the end of the tribulation period. Remember Revelation chapter 6, when they say, How long till you avenge our blood? And they're given a white robe, told to wait a little longer until the rest of their brothers are going to be killed in the same way. The Old Testament saints, they don't get their new bodies until the end of the tribulation period. But when we all come back with him, that's when they get theirs. So David will have a resurrected body. Will David sin anymore in his resurrected body? No. So why is David offering a sin offering for himself if David doesn't sin? And some people have said, well, that can't be David. Hang on for a second. It's not only for his sin, but also for who else's? It says for and for all the people. Let me ask you this question. Has your sin been separated from as far as the east is the west from you? How many of you show hands take the Lord's Supper on a regular basis? Do you take that to take away your sin? It's a remembrance of your sin. So you actually do a ritual that's a reminder of your sin. I got no problem with David offering a sacrifice for his sin and the sin of all the people. Because remember, these sacrifices that we've already looked at, they don't remove sin they never did. They're a remembrance. They were pointing toward what Jesus was going to do in the Old Testament. But now, afterwards, they're going to be a remembrance of what he's done I got no problem with David offering a sacrifice for his sin because it's just like me taking the Lord's Supper and you taking the Lord's Supper. Man, I hope there's nobody here that thinks when you take the Lord's Supper, all of a sudden you're washed clean. You're already washed clean. David's offering of his sacrifice isn't going to be removing his sin or the sin of the people. Because remember, we've already seen the prophecies, especially the remnant of Israel. They're all going to know him from the least to the greatest. So I got no problem with that. But now... The people who come into the temple must leave via the opposite gate that they entered from. Now, i got to be honest with you. Some commentators say this could simply be for traffic flow. If you go in the southern gate, go out the northern gate. If you're going in the northern gate, go straight out the southern gate and stay to the right. Or if you're from England, stay to the left. By the way, have you ever been in a theme park like Disney and you see people coming and you find out whether they're from England or from America because of which side they try to go to? Actually, I've been in the park where it's so crowded. They actually have people back in the area around Small World and Peter Pan whose job, Disney employees, is to stand there with a sign that says, Stay to the right. And then the other side says, Stay to the right. Just so people can pass through when it gets really crowded in that section of Fantasyland. I don't think this is because of traffic flow. I think there's something more to this and I want to close tonight with that. Hopefully because of our encounter with the Lord, we don't stay the same. And I wonder if a part of this, remember they're coming into the temple for what purpose? To worship. To worship Jesus. And as they come with their offering, they come with their gift I wonder if God has said, when you come in, if you're coming in the south gate, go out the north. If you're coming in the north gate, go out the south. As a reminder that after your encounter with the Lord, you're changed. Go to Zechariah, sorry, not Zechariah, Luke, Luke chapter 19. And we'll look at a quick story of a man named Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19, look at verses 1 through 9. Luke 19, starting in verse 1. He, this is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Oh, by the way, this is just a reminder. At this time of year, God loves tax collectors. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he couldn't because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, real quickly, for those who don't know this, for a rabbi to stay and eat at your house was a tremendous honor. And what he did in front of all those people was honor Zacchaeus and said, I'm going to eat at your house so we don't know what happens in the encounter. The Bible says in verse 6, He hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Jesus has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'm going to repay them fourfold. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We don't know what the conversation was when Jesus was in Zacchaeus' house, but upon meeting Jesus, he he heard about him, he wanted to see him, and then he shows up and he says, I'm going to your house. The guy runs down, he can't believe it. And when he gets to Zacchaeus' house, Zacchaeus is amazingly changed. He was a rich man, and it wasn't because he was a good guy. It was because tax collectors had Roman soldiers on each side of them whenever they'd go to collect tax, and whatever extra they could get was what they made, and they would extort people. They would take advantage of their power for unjust gain. And he says, I'm going to give half of everything I have to others. And if I've cheated anybody, by the way, how did that come to mind? Called conviction. I'm gonna pay them back four times. Let me ask you a question. I'm gonna be real careful about how I ask this. I'm not gonna ask you, have you been saved? I'm not gonna ask you if you prayed a prayer. I'm not gonna ask you if you've been baptized. I'm not gonna ask you if you joined a church. I'm gonna ask you, has there been a change in you because of your encounter with Jesus? Are you not the person you were and are you still growing in your walk? The Bible talks about growing up into Christ, transferring from glory to glory, growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think personally, the reason why they were told, if you come in the south gate, go out the north. gate. Oh, by the way, that's going to make the people that live in the southern part have to interact with the people in the northern part. People in the northern part are going to have to interact with the people in the southern part. Are you different? Would your wife or your husband or your kids or your neighbor or your coworkers would they say there's something different about these people? And it would be because of Jesus. Folks, one of the biggest evidence of real salvation is not that we said, I'm saved. Not that we were baptized. Not that we prayed a prayer. Not that we joined a church. It's that Jesus has truly come to indwell. And we're different. We're still not perfect yet. But are you letting him do his work? Do you be, need to be reminded I'm not who I'm supposed to be or I'm not who I was, but I'm also not there yet either, and I want God to keep doing his work. in I think it's kind of cool that he gave them a, a physical reminder. We'll be giving them a physical reminder of their interaction with Jesus. Changes. If it doesn't, I've been a Christian my whole life. You ever heard that one? That always makes me a little nervous. The Bible says there has to be a point where you pass from death to life. And on top of that, I'm so glad I'm not the Christian I was when I was a Christian back in 1973. My wife and kids can tell you, thank God I'm not the Christian I was back then. Thank God that he's still doing his work in me. And I hope the people around you see it. I love you. See you next week. We conclude Ezekiel next week.